I'm Jason Mitchell, co-head of Responsible Investment at Man Group. You're listening to Perspectives Toward a Sustainable Future, a podcast about what we're doing today to build a more sustainable world tomorrow. In our last episode, we discussed domestic climate security with the UK Environment Agency. But no conversation is complete without understanding what climate security means in an international context. Research estimates that for every half degree of warming, the frequency of human conflict increases by between 10 to 20%. Now, no one is saying that the relationship between climate and conflict is perfectly causal. But there's growing evidence to support the argument that climate is an increasingly important factor behind global conflict. In fact, a UN report found that 40% of interstate conflicts in the last 60 years are linked in some way to natural resources. So it's worth considering just how seriously defense ministries and militaries are taking climate security. After all, they're supposed to be the coolest heads in the room, the ones we depend on to act rationally when it comes to nuclear deterrence and terrorism. turns out they're taking it very seriously. In fact, there's a rich history of national defense and security strategy reports alluding to climate change and doing so with increasing frequency which means their concerns represent a legitimizing voice behind climate change. So what's this have to do with political economy and markets? Well, a lot, too. Only last month, U.S. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo framed the loss of Arctic sea ice in commercial terms as opportunities for trade and offshore resources. And as you'll hear on this podcast, commercial and national interests could go hand-in-hand in areas like the Arctic. It could also be argued that drought amplified the Syrian conflict, the subsequent flow of migrants and refugees emboldening far-right populism and leading to political instability in a number of European countries. A UN report estimates there could be as many as 200 million environmental migrants by 2050. To better understand climate security, I sat down with Professor Malcolm Chalmers and Jamie Kwong from the Royal United Services Institute, or RUSI, Founded in 1831 by the Duke of Wellington, RUSI is a British think tank that promotes the study and discussion of international defense and security issues. Professor Malcolm Chalmers is Deputy Director General of RUSI. His research focuses on UK defense, foreign, and security policy. His publications include studies on Brexit and European security, the UK's modernizing defense program review, and future nuclear threats to the UK. Malcolm is an advisor to Parliament's Joint Committee on the National Security Strategy and a member of the consultative panel for both the 2010 and 2015 Strategic Defense and Security Reviews. Jamie Kwong is a Marshall Scholar, pursuing her PhD in War Studies at King's College London, where her research focuses on public engagement with nuclear weapons issues. She recently served as a research assistant in the Proliferation and Nuclear Policy Program at RUSI, working on projects related to nuclear stability. Welcome to the show, Malcolm. It's great to have you here. Oh, my pleasure. So I want to start off with uh, defining climate security. Well, starting with the word security, security is a way of thinking about policy in terms of threats, things which could upset society, upset upset citizens, whether that's an invasion or a terrorist attack or indeed a a meteorological event. And in terms of climate security, what we're talking about is ways in which climate change, global climate change, can impact uh, the stability 
of societies potentially generating a conflict of one sort or another. And that, I think, means uh, in most cases that climate in itself uh, doesn't cause wars, but it can be a what I would call a threat multiplier in, in combination with other factors that can make conflict more likely or more deadly. For example, in societies which are already pretty weak, which rely a lot in the natural environment, on agriculture in particular for their sustenance, uh, and where living standards are low, governance is perhaps rather weak, the added pressures from climate change make uh, conflict more likely, and that's particularly evident, I think, in many tropical countries in West Africa, uh, in Central Africa, if you look at DRC or Nigeria, if you look at the Middle East and the extra strains which climate change are already placing on many Gulf countries where it's hard to sustain life in the summer without uh, air conditioning, uh, that adds to all the pressures those societies are already facing. How would you characterize the evolution and emergence of climate security within the overall defense context? You know, I think talk about climate security has been around in a defense foreign policy sphere for a decade or more. I worked in the foreign office for a couple of years in 2006, 2007. And at that time, there was already a lot of talk about climate as a security issue in the Foreign Office, in the Ministry of Defence and elsewhere. So it's not entirely new. Uh, and it's, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a something which is seen as a long-term problem which we all have to address. How would you frame it in a multilateral context? I sort of I think back in 2007, the UN Security Council held its first debate on climate change and the implications on international security. And one of the findings from that, interestingly, was that uh, all but one of the emergency appeals for humanitarian aid that they received were climate related. Yes, and I, I was uh, uh, advising the Foreign Secretary at that time when we went to the Security Council and put some pressure on the United States to accept this. So the United States pretty reluctant uh, to to have uh, climate discussed at the Security Council. But yes, it's very much it comes back to climate being a threat multiplier. Those humanitarian emergencies weren't only about climate change, just as individual weather events aren't about climate change, but climate change is already and will increasingly in the future be one of the most important contributing factors to insecurity. So if you're trying to uh, create more security for the world, then you have to bring the climate dimension on board. Hmm. How would you frame it more locally in a UK context uh, in terms of the advisory work you've done for the uh, Strategic Defence and Security Review where I think over the last decade, you've seen the emergence and frequency of the term climate change show up um, eight times in the 2010 document, and suddenly um, significantly more in the latest document in 2015, 26 times it was alluded to. If you're talking about UK impact of climate change, if you're talking about more flooding in, in, on Britain's coastline, for example, then the policy agenda is relatively clear. You need to invest more uh, in preparations uh, for that happening. Uh, internationally, it's a lot harder because uh, there's, a, there's a limit to the extent to which you can impose your priorities on other countries. Uh, the UK funds quite substantial amount of uh, climate resilience work as part of its 
overseas development program along with many other countries. Uh, but uh, we don't want to be placed in the position in which we are telling Nigeria or Iraq to prioritise climate resilience over primary education or building roads or whatever it might be. That's for those countries to decide. Uh, and more generally, I think, on, on mitigation, uh, the, one of the central problems, I think, in, in uh, developing an international response to uh, climate change is that uh, climate change is a global phenomenon. Uh, all but the largest countries uh, can do relatively little on their own. If you're to the US and China and you cut emissions by 20%, it makes a real difference to the global climate. For, for just about everybody else, you can make a 20% reduction in your emissions, including the UK, and the impact on the on the global uh, greenhouse gas emissions is, is pretty small. So international cooperation is absolutely essential. And certainly what the UK has done, and we're not unique in this regard, is therefore put a lot of emphasis on international diplomacy mm. on the mitigation side, because that's the only way, but it, it's only by persuading others to work with us to tackle this problem that we've got any chance of, of, of limiting the, the temperature rise which we're now facing. That's helpful. I mean, clearly climate change has been an issue at the multilateral level uh, very broadly for, for many decades. But in a climate security context, how do you think that it's been adopted and applied you know, within the Ministry of Defense? For instance, when I think about the U.S. Department of Defense, mm -hmm. um, there's clearly a lot of talk about uh, uh, the operational environment, um, the uh, implications for assets across the military divisions. Um, th there's a lot of capacity building, it seems like, in, in this area. Well, I would say there are three impacts in ministries of defense. The, the most strategic, probably the most important, uh, is uh, widespread recognition, which you get in the United States just as you do here, uh, that climate change is a potential threat multiplier and parts of the world which are already pretty problematic in terms of conflict, uh, where there are large and growing populations, but at low levels and, and sometimes fragile governments, places like West Africa, parts of South Asia, uh, conflict's going to be more likely to get worse uh, as a result of, of continuing temperature rises and flooding and uh, and changing agricultural patterns and so on. So that's number one, the most important uh, it's just going to make problems we're dealing with anyway worse. Secondly, uh, there's an issue about whether uh, climate change is going to mean armed forces will have to operate rather differently in particular environments than they have in the past. So melting uh, Arctic ice cap means that it will be possible to get places which we haven't been able to get to in the past, particularly with our, our navies, uh, but also in tropical areas, there may be more places where we have to operate at extreme temperatures. Uh, so that has some impact. I would say relatively marginal impact, but has some impact on on design of, of forces, uh, maybe on drones as well, not necessarily on, on manned capabilities. But the pace of technological change actually in the military is so great that this is just one of many factors. And then finally, there's a, a more economic operational dimension where... Uh, the armed forces uh, consume an enormous amount of fuel <laughs> uh, and uh, in hard to get to areas it's very uh, cumbersome indeed it's costly even in terms of risks of casualties uh, 
if you have to get an enormous train, logistical train in place in Afghanistan or West Africa, wherever it might be. So the more you can rely on local sources of renewable power, if you can put up some windmills or or solar panels, uh, or you can even ideally have hybrid tanks uh, or armoured vehicles or airplanes, uh, then that can the military can do their bit in terms of of mitigation, but also making making their operations more effective. So that's probably the third dimension which the main militaries have have been doing quite a bit of work on. Mm. Yeah, in the 2015 security review, it uh, it describes climate change as quote increasingly a risk to the UK, with the full effects on UK national security more likely <clears throat> to be seen after 2035. So we're now 16 years away, which is short term or long term, depending on you know, your your sort of uh, uh, forward looking view. Um, how? How do you think, from a Ministry of Defense perspective, how does the calculus start to change in terms of dimensionalizing the risks um, that, that you mentioned? I think it's fascinating because I think foreign offices uh, tend to be very short-term focused. They're about reaction to current events. And uh, we all try to have uh, foreign policy strategies, but an awful lot of foreign policy boils down to what Vladimir Putin is doing this week or President Xi or whoever it might be uh, because you have to respond. You have no choice but to respond to those crises and indeed how those crises develops, develop will determine where we are in 2020, never mind 2030 or 2035. But ministries, particularly the Ministry of Defence uh, which spend so much of their time not responding to crises but building capabilities for future crises uh, are designing submarines and ships we're at the moment uh, just uh, starting to build a new class of frigates which will come into service maybe in six or seven years time and will be in service in 20 years time and there are questions about how you design that capability and climate is one of the factors you take into account in those uh, designs. We had some real problems with our Type 45 destroyers recently and they had to have a major refit because they couldn't cope with the hot weather in the Gulf <laughs> and they had to come back home and get uh, get uh, new engines. So that's a very practical demonstration of what happens if you don't take climate uh, into account. But in the longer time frame, that's even more so. It's... Uh, but even, I mean, the question of climate as a threat multiplier, creating more conflicts in the future than there might otherwise have been, is a factor. It's hard to factor that into design of current forces, though, because there are a number of intermediate variables, not least how much in 20 years' time we'll want our armed forces to be in Iraq or Nigeria or Bangladesh. And... Uh, that's not mainly a question of climate or other factors on the ground. It's also a matter of Britain's appetite for working in those areas. So there's a variety of, of, of impacts here um, which need to be taken into account. Certainly uh, the focus of, of the climate change uh, community, if you like, on the medium to long term sits better on the procurement end of defence than the operations end. We've seen um, a significant rise in urgency um, from the scientific community. Uh, just over the last couple of months, we've seen the IPCC report come out um, with some pretty dire predictions. Um, 
at one and a half degrees uh, increase Celsius. Uh, we've seen the U.S. National Climate Assessment come out uh, with some equally dire predictions uh, in, in parts of the, of the U.S. and the implications, at least domestically, for for the infrastructure. I guess I'm, I'm curious about the urgency of climate change within a security dimension in the UK and to what degree it's it's increased in urgency relative to other areas. Yes, I think that the UK will face some challenges as UK in terms of climate change, but I don't think it's seen as as high a priority as it would be if we were a more challenged area. And uh, But I think it's a lot of it's to do with are you mainly talking about resilience responding to climate change that's going to happen in any case? Or are you talking about mitigation? If you're talking about, and I think a lot of the response for national governments has to be the former because any individual state only has so much influence on on the global picture. And clearly we're moving into a period right now in which led by the United States, a number of influential countries uh, are uh, dialing down on the commitment they're they're making to climate change mitigation. The UK is not in that situation. I think the UK is more or less where other West European countries are, where they recognise this is a serious problem. They do have some quite ambitious uh, emissions reduction uh, targets, uh, and they would much prefer that the Paris Agreement was fully implemented by everybody uh, concerned. So, uh, and that's part of a wider UK. A commitment to maintaining a multilateral order in relation to climate change, but it's it, it's a it's a worrying period, and I think it's also the case that if you look at some of the practical mitigation measures, that uh, as in a number of European other European countries, there's nervousness about the economic and political costs involved. We've just seen what's happened to President Macron when uh, driven by climate mitigation concerns, he put up fuel taxes. Fuel levies in the UK have been frozen for several years after having been increased for quite a number of years, in part uh, because of climate change concerns. And those have now been frozen for some time because of nervousness about the political uh, consequences. Maybe the other point I would make is the relationship with the energy security uh, debate because uh, energy security is not the same as climate security. Energy security is a more national concept. It's about uh, not having to rely on unreliable suppliers of energy. Uh, Europeans would like to be able to rely less on Russia for gas uh, or on the Middle East uh, for oil. Uh, And some of the ways in which you respond to those energy security concerns are very compatible with climate security. So if you invest more in renewables at home, Uh, You can import less gas and oil, that's fine. But sometimes if you're talking about uh, more investment in in shale uh, or more investment in coal in the case of the United States, then it goes directly against the climate uh, security agenda. And I think what we're seeing certainly in the case of the United States is a big move towards putting priority in energy security rather than climate security. Even in the UK, there's a bit of that, but, but much less than than the other side of the Atlantic. How do you think about it relative to food security or even the protection of overseas territories or actually, by extension, foreign policy as relates to the Commonwealth states? 
I, I think food security is, is an issue in the UK in relation to Brexit. There's some, some really interesting mm-hmm. issues there right at the top of the agenda. How far, I mean, the UK hasn't been self-reliant on food for a very long period of time. It became a bit more self-reliant uh, after World War Two, but uh, historically we've been very willing to to import, import our food from elsewhere and you know, but most of those food imports uh, come from our neighbours in Europe, who uh, r- will remain our close friends and allies. Uh, so I don't, I don't think that's a big problem. There's a, sort of, there's a Brexit twist to that, but I don't think in the long term that's a big issue. If we're if we're relying on large scale food supplies from a long way away, then that might be a problem. I don't. For for the UK, it's not a problem. It's clearly a problem for many other countries, which are likely to be more affected by. Uh, by climate change than we are. How do you see the melting ice caps in the Arctic, whether it's uh, greater transport by ships or competition for the oil and natural gas fields up there? um, How do you see that affecting British foreign policy and diplomacy? Is that a threat? There was a time in which people felt that we reached peak oil, that we were running out of petrochemicals, uh, and uh, that would solve the problem of climate change because we wouldn't be able to find enough oil and gas to burn to raise world temperatures uh, to an unacceptable level. And unfortunately, that's not the case, that every year new technologies are found uh, to extract more oil and gas for more inhospitable environments, which in the past it would have not been economic to exploit. I think we're now in a situation which, if the price is right, we can continue to uh, explore and develop, burn oil and gas to our heart's content for almost indefinitely, certainly long beyond the point at which the the rise in global temperatures is is entirely unacceptable. Uh, At the same time, uh, as long as uh, oil and gas are, are key elements in energy, supplies for many countries, then there is a nervousness about relying on others for those. So there will still be a competition uh, for access to them. And one of the worrying things about today's world is such a large proportion of oil and gas supplies come from countries which uh, are pretty problematic as foreign policy partners. Uh, Russia is a very obvious example, but so too are the, the countries of the Gulf Qatar is one of the largest uh, suppliers of gas to the United Kingdom and uh, who knows uh, what the impact would be if, if that was suddenly uh, cut off. So that's, that, that's nothing to do with climate change but it's going to be a continuing, uh, a continuing concern. Of course a more rapid uh, move towards the re- use of renewable energy or indeed nuclear energy uh, would reduce that, that dependence. What do you think the future is of multilateralism and, and multilateral institutions going forward as relates to climate change, just simply from a foreign policy perspective, maybe even outside of the security, climate security context? Um, are you optimistic? I mean, particularly given um, the US, U.S. exit from the Paris Agreement, I mean, most recently the uh, banding together of the U.S., uh, Russian, Saudi, and Kuwaiti mm. uh, interests in, in disavowing some of the language around COP24? I'm quite pessimistic about the uh, the potential for international agreements to make a decisive difference in relation to climate change, partly because 
the pressure on countries to free ride is so great. And partly because in order to try and keep people within the tent, the tendency is to get countries to make commitments which actually really won't affect their behaviour very much. So you can keep the Americans in Paris, perhaps, maybe under the next president. But in return, they won't promise more than what they would have done anyway. They won't really bear a significant cost in doing so. And that's probably true of a number of other countries as well. And uh, some of the commitments made, uh, people know that the commitments made in Paris uh, will not be enough uh, to meet the demanding uh, emission control targets which the scientists are telling us are necessary. So I'm quite pessimistic in that regard. What I think is really critical, uh, and maybe this is hope rather than analysis, is that increased attention to climate change as an issue is generating increased budgets by public and private sector actors into alternative means of energy generation, uh, which will and indeed are becoming increasingly competitive against uh, against uh, fossil fuels. Uh, and uh, that attention is also having an impact domestically uh, so that in, within societies uh, there's political pressure to do more and act more rapidly because in the end, uh, in democratic societies, but actually in non-democratic societies as well, Governments respond to public pressure and the public ha uh, is pushing hard uh, for uh, environmental improvement and that makes a big difference. Domestically, however, I would say, and I think China and India are really good examples of this, that the most immediate environmental pressure there isn't greenhouse gas emissions per se, it's local pollution, the enormous problem you have of, of poisonous smog uh, in in most of the major cities of China and India as a result of diesel emissions and, and partly local agriculture and factories and what have you all coming together. And that's creating a really strong green movement, anti-pollution movement in these countries, which can have the collateral benefit of of maybe reining back the, the rapid growth in the emissions that you're seeing in, across much of developing Asia. Uh, my last question is this. If you look at the latest government document out of the UK, the future starts today, put out by the Development Concepts and Doctrine Center, which is a department within the uh, Ministry of Defense. Um, there is a high degree of urgency around the risks that climate change represents. Mm. Um, in fact, climate change as a term is is mentioned 185 times in that document. Um, so uh, I guess I'm wondering, what do you think we should expect out of the, the 2020 UK security review? Would you imagine that climate security or climate change is a bit more well-defined? Would you expect it to be uh, more prominent? I think the prominence given to climate change will continue at more or less at current levels. I think there's a settled recognition that climate change is going to contribute to insecurity worldwide for the foreseeable future and that we need in every aspect of government uh, to take that into account. It's not the only factor by any means. In many places it's not the predominant factor but in some places it's a really critical factor which people are feeling now. It's not only a 2035 problem, it's a problem now if you look at insecurity in Iraq or Syria or West Africa. There's, there are issues being created in terms of our ability to contribute to security and stability in those places. So it's an issue now, it will be an, a growing issue in future, and it's, it's going to continue to inform UK government policy. But it's also true that there are no 
easy magic answers. It's simply one of these grinding problems which any analysis of security in the Middle East which fails to acknowledge or take into account climate change uh, is sadly lacking. Got it. And now over to Jamie Kwong, author of a Rusi paper examining the nuclear implications of climate change in the Arctic. It's great to have you on the show, Jamie. Thank you so much. So I want to start out with why the Arctic is so strategically significant. And maybe you can give us some context about why it's so significant with regard to the Cold War. Sure. Uh, so... When we're thinking about the Cold War uh, and the strategic conflict between the U.S. and Soviet Union, so much of that rested on the ability for each side to attack one another, to launch a nuclear strike. Um, And so for a successful nuclear attack, it kind of rests on two pillars, stealth and speed. Um, So if we're thinking about stealth, can your missile go undetected by your adversary? And speed, because it probably can't be undetected, um, how quickly can you deliver it to your adversary? So when both the U.S. and Soviet Union were kind of planning this all out, they quickly realized that a trajectory over the Arctic would offer one of the quickest uh, delivery paths or routes to their adversary. So we see by the late 1950s, uh, the U.S. and Canada building the distant early warning line, which was a system of radar installations placed along 3,000 miles of both of the state's uh, northernmost borders that could detect an incoming Soviet ICBM. So we see kind of deterrence actions and moves up there. We see some on the Russian side as well, basing its northern fleet in the Kola Peninsula, which is a Russian peninsula that juts out into the Arctic um, to kind of counter-deter the U.S. from a nuclear attack. So the Arctic played a significant role in that Cold War balance of power, mutually assured destruction, stuff that we learned in high school, essentially. Hmm. So you could say that, you know, the threat of climate change, of, of the thawing of the Arctic, essentially threatens or potentially undermines that balance of power that has been held for the last 50, 75 years. Absolutely. And I think even just thinking about the radar systems and the structures and infrastructure that's placed up in the Arctic uh, in terms of nuclear installations and the like is most definitely threatened by climate change. So I talk about this a bit in my my article. um, But if you're thinking about these radar systems. Uh, So I mentioned the distant early warning line. It was replaced by the North Warning System in the late 1970s or so. It's due for an update. But that update that should be lasting for another 30 to 40 years uh, is going to have to be put into a constantly changing environment. So when you have permafrost melting, uh, that's really disrupting soil patterns. It's, you know, the rising temperatures and such are thawing that, that permafrost. And any infrastructure built on that land is is going to be affected. Uh, So designers of that replacement system will be tasked with developing uh, radars that can adapt to a continuously changing, in this case, thawing environment. And that's going to prove very challenging. Got it. Got it. You know, the UN Security Council just last week um, had a debate around climate risk. And the thing that always gets thrown around the expression is that climate change is a threat multiplier. We've heard this from Malcolm on this episode as well. But what does that mean in an Arctic context? What do the military implications mean for that? Sure. So I think thinking about the Arctic, a lot of the movement happening there right now, we see Russia in particular really increasing its presence in the region, China a little bit, which we can talk about later. Um, But they're moving in uh, because, you know, with the thawing of the ice, uh, sea lanes are opening up. 
natural resources that haven't been tapped are becoming much more accessible. Um, so as we're moving these kind of more commercially leaned uh, assets in, it's quickly followed by military assets as well because it's quickly becoming apparent that uh, there's going to be kind of contention in uh, claiming the territory. Um, so as we're moving military assets in, simply having more up there means more military drills, more likelihood for encounters, um, and just potentially problematic uh, relations between all of the Arctic nations. Um, and specifically thinking about the nuclear realm, um, with, for instance, less ice, you know, some climate scientists saying by 2050 we're going to have completely ice-free summers up in the Arctic, that affects nuclear activities. So if we're thinking about SSBN patrols, nuclear subs, um, those subs patrolling the area really rely on aerial cover and the background noise of layers of Arctic ice to avoid detection because that's really important for the nuclear mm -hmm. subs. They don't want any of their signals picked up. Um, but if we're having less ice, that means there's going to have to be more resources spent on securing that underwater space. So think escorts, patrolling aircrafts, things like that. Um, and as we're moving more of those resources up there as well, uh, again, that increases the potential for encounters between NATO and Russian nuclear-related military assets. We are seeing Russia and China acting faster than a lot of the Western states. Um, so if we think about it in terms of the icebreakers, for instance, I think Russia has something like 40 icebreakers, a lot of them nuclear-powered, is currently building a whole new big class that's ginormous, <laughs> essentially. <laughs> um, the U.S., last I checked, I think as of last April, they had two. Hmm. Um, so there is an effort to build more icebreakers for the U.S. Coast Guard. Um, but, you know, if we're thinking about this in terms of potential areas for conflict, you know, the two different sides are moving at different paces, and, and that plays a significant role. How do you think about the you know urgency in this area? Is it military interests first, or is it sort of driven more around interests for navigation lanes or energy resources or fishing? I think it's more the latter. Like I said, as the space is becoming more accessible, states want to tap those natural resources. And we kind of see that reflected in the Antarctic as well. Um, China is building an air base there um, and kind of moving into that territory as well, again, for kind of those natural resources. But as we've been discussing, as you're moving commercial interests in, there's military attachments to that over the territorial claims. And that's kind of the area that I've been focusing on specifically in the nuclear side of things. Yeah. What about multilateral solutions? What about the Arctic Council, which is, you know, for the, for the audience, it's a council composed of eight countries, Canada, the U.S., Denmark, Finland, Iceland, Norway, Russia, and Sweden, um, which tend to touch on a lot of these issues, but doesn't have, you know, a, a military mandate, unfortunately. Right. So I think, as you said, because the audit Ottawa Declaration specifically excludes a mandate on covering military security issues. I don't think that we're going to see the Arctic Council playing any specific role in setting parameters or restrictions on kind of what type of military assets you can move into the region. But I think what will be important is for multilateral efforts like the Arctic Council to continue to serve as an open forum and a place to encourage dialogue amongst these states. And not only these states, but also the indigenous groups uh, in the Arctic. Um, if you have more dialogue between these states, it's more likely that they'll be able to work out their issues 
in a separate space before it might result into a military confrontation or a rising conflict of the sort. So I think still encouraging that that dialogue and letting it spill over into the military domain is a positive. Mm. I mean, if the Arctic Council doesn't touch on military issues, is it naive to think that in the future we might see a NATO version, you know, covering the Arctic, um, but just, you know, sort of increasing militarization, protecting or defining territories? That's a good question. I'm not sure, um, because we are already seeing NATO states, especially those Nordic NATO states, turning towards the high north and encouraging their military and alliance partners to do the same uh, because they're worried about Russian movements up there. So I think we're seeing so much tension already between the two sides. It's hard for me to picture, especially thinking outside of the Arctic and kind of the geopolitical environment that we're in right now, it's hard for me to picture you know, a, a large enough and encompassing enough military lines that would include both sides of that. Talk to me about what an ice-free, at least during the summer months, Arctic looks like by 2050, if that happens, you know, in the context of nuclear proliferation, potentially. Sure. So I think, again, speaking first to the nuclear subs, that's greatly going to affect the patrolling patterns. As I said, you're going to have to move more military Mm -hmm. assets up there to ensure that the water's secure, uh, that these subs are as undetectable as possible, so as to ensure their second strike capability. Um, and then if we're turning to kind of the, the ground-based and land assets, there's the potential for those to be disrupted as well. Um, again, as the summers not only are ice-free but are hotter and hotter, that melting permafrost is going to have a real effect. Um, and kind of getting back to your earlier question on kind of the two sides of this, again, we're seeing Russia kind of creating more Arctic-ready assets. So it has a special missile interceptor in place. Uh, It's called the TOR-2DT surface-to-air missile system, if you want to get technical. (laughs) (laughs) Um, and, And so I think they're really preparing for this, and we're not seeing as much of that on the Western side. Hmm. Are there any other Western countries, the UK, for instance, has has talked about being more Arctic ready in terms of their fleets? Um, What other countries have have not just talked, but started to even nominally prepare? Sure. So I think it really is the Nordic states and that NATO alliance that are really pushing uh, for more funding, more attention from their alliance partners. And so we do see some of that. As you mentioned, the UK has released a couple of reports with a cheeky title on thin ice um, coming <laughs> out, and they're, they're set to release a new defense Arctic strategy sometime this year. Um, but I think there's more that can be done, and the Nordic states are really pushing for that. As I mentioned, the US is behind Um, And so even with the recently released DOD report, it was released earlier this month, um, that was meant to assess kind of how climate change is going to affect DOD assets around the world. It had a a few mentions of Arctic regional issues, so talking about the problematic presence of live training exercises, the disruptions that the changing environment will have to military installations and the like. Um, But all it called for was, quote-unquote, further military support to civil authorities to enable the peaceful opening of the Arctic. Hmm. No specifics. Um, It really left a lot of members of Congress and the public wanting for more. Um, And so I think that that's something that's definitely going to need to be addressed quite quickly. Why don't you think that it hasn't been addressed under the current administration? I mean, you know, Trump is, he's been talking about a space force. (laughs) Why not 
you know, an Arctic force. There are clear energy resources up there. There are land claims that, you know, potentially cause territorial issues around Alaska, for instance, in terms of fishing rights and energy rights. You know, it would seem something that certainly was touched on during the Obama administration that sort of would have been continued at least to be developed under the current administration. Yeah, I think there's a lot of political pressures, honestly, um, and that's kind of resulted in a lack of prioritization and perhaps stretched resources or diverted resources. So that definitely proves one of the problems um, and is probably a good reason why Western states haven't kind of acted as quickly as we see Russia and China doing. Hmm. So I want to end on one last question, which is, you know, can you sort of talk about the bigger picture in terms of what climate change means in a global security context, not just from an Arctic perspective. Sure. So I think climate change will have some serious consequences for global security and that that needs to be one of the key focuses of, you know, security experts and the DOD and the like moving forward. Um, But what's really lacking from that conversation is a specific focus on the effects that climate change will pose on nuclear infrastructures and activities around the world. And I think that that needs to be a serious conversation to be had. Um, It'll affect not only assets, but also strategic stability. And we see that that plays a very important role in the geopolitical context uh, of the century. So that's actually the focus of a paper that Heather Williams and I are working on uh, from King's College London that aims to assess these broader implications that that link between climate change and nuclear security poses for the future of deterrence in the 21st century. Great. I'll look forward to that. Thanks so much for joining. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Well, It's been fascinating to discuss how the notion of climate security has evolved both at a UK and at a multilateral level. It is now part of the policy lexicon and increasingly embedded into documents like the UK's Strategic Defense and Security Review. So I'd like to thank you for your time and views. I'm Jason Mitchell, co-head of Responsible Investment at Man Group, here with Professor Malcolm Chalmers, Deputy Director General of RUSI and Jamie Kwong. Many thanks for joining us on Perspectives Toward a Sustainable Future, and I hope you'll join us on our next podcast episode. You're listening to Perspectives Toward a Sustainable Future, a podcast about what we're doing today to build a more sustainable world tomorrow. I'm Jason Mitchell. Thanks for joining us, and special thanks to everyone that helped produce this show. To check out more episodes of this podcast, please visit us at man.com forward slash responsible dash investment or look for us on iTunes.